Anna here. Did you know I have another podcast? And did you know it's all about failure? Well, at this point, you'd have to answer yes to both of those questions because I just told you. But my other show isn't just about failure. It's about failing your way to success. Yes, success. Because the most successful people are often just the people who've gotten up the most times after their failures. Don't believe me? Go download Fail Your Way to Success wherever you get your podcasts or go to failyourway.com for more info. Now back to the show. Welcome to the after party. It's time to change. You're just getting started. You can teach an old dog new ways and not just on Saturday. Hey guys, Anna David with the After Party Pod, podcast about addiction, recovery, mental illness, and other things that people may not want to talk about. Now, that is a good intro to talk about today's episode. I'm just kind of going to get right into it. It is with an author named Rob Roberge. Now, how many people can you say their first name is also encompassed in their last name? Not many. He's the first I know of. He's also a tremendous writer. Uh, his new book is called Liar, a Memoir. A Memoir. God, I just said that word strangely. And it is it is beyond gripping. I will tell you that uh, the publicist emailed me about it, told me it was coming out soon. And I said, eh, I don't really have time to read it before. Anyway, she said, don't worry about it. You're going to read it the minute you get it. And that is exactly what happened. It is a memoir about mental illness and addiction. And it is told in a nonlinear way, as in uh, it just it starts when he's a child, but then it jumps, dates different. It's, it's all uh, out of order. And uh, as he says in this interview you're about to listen to, he did that precisely because it's how his brain works. Uh, it kind of is, I might be misusing this word, but like onomatopoeia. Is that what I mean? I don't know. It's, a, it's the end of a three-day weekend and my brain is a little bit tired, but an onomatopoeic version of a memoir? Who knows? You guys email me, Anna at the afterpartygroup.com. Email me and tell me I don't know what onomatopoeia means because that is pretty much the truth. Uh, regardless, uh, this is an amazing memoir. He has written a number of books. This is not his first book, but it is his first book with a major publisher. His novels include The Cost of Living, Working Backwards from the Worst Moment of My Life, More Than They Could Chew, and Drive. And he is somebody who is loved by other writers, you know, Cheryl Strait and Janet Fitch are some of the writers that have been touting him. He's very good friends with previous podcast guest and acclaimed After Party Magazine writer Patrick O'Neill. Patrick's a character in this book. In case you don't know, After Party Magazine is the umbrella for this podcast. I can't tell you how many of you email me and uh, and say, oh, this podcast, blah, 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 and I write back and I say, yeah, you know, it's part of After Party Magazine, and, they, and then you say, what is that? This is just the tiniest fraction of After Party Magazine. Uh, if you like this podcast or classed, you will love the website. It's 12 new stories a day about addiction and recovery. Some of the people on this podcast write for the website. So it's like listening, but with your eyes, you're reading it. Uh, 
So that's my spiel for After Party Magazine. And I, I think I might be done with my spiel for Rob Roberge. I'm going to let his, uh, I'm going to let him tell you the bulk of it. But essentially, uh, we talk a lot about mental illness, dealing with it, addiction, recovery, relapse, um, Oxycontin, quaaludes. Yeah, it's a good one. So here you go with Robert Bears. I first started taking drugs by chewing blocks of hash. Oh my God. I think my copy has like blood stains on it from shooting up while reading it. Party animal. I hate to say that because that makes me sound Paris Hilton. I was on the, as right. I call it, the Autobahn to nowhere. I'm very lucky because would you have wanted to have a celebrity junkie for a dad? Thank you for doing this. Thanks so much for having me. Um, I absolutely loved your book. I could not put it down. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, And so in terms of what you were just saying about there being no secrets now, how does that feel, a book that is so honest about so many things? Um, It feels kind of miserable, actually. Does it? Um, Yeah. Well, it just came out last week, and it um, sort of stirred a lot of emotions that I didn't see coming. Um, like what? Um, well, worried about the reaction of people I know reading it. Um, worried about the reaction of strangers, you know. Um, it, it was just, I, I just had this, you know, th- thought. I had an, a night of insomnia and thought, you know, maybe there are some books you need to write but you don't need to release. <laughs> really? Um, yeah, you know, it's a, it's a pretty raw, embarrassing book, you know, and um, I don't know that I was totally prepared for it to be in the world until it was. Well, what have reactions been so far? Um, you mean? Well, so if it came out last week, uh, um, have you received an onslaught of emails from people? Or is this mostly what you're imagining happening or actual reactions that you've been privy to it's probably with the people i know it's a fear you Mm -hmm. know i don't i don't know that that many of them have read it yet or that many of them will you know it's a an assumption i'm making that they even would bother with it right um i did hear from uh one ex who was very happy with it and and like one of the exes in the book yeah which was really nice Mm -hmm. um and um she was really sweet and um you know, complimentary about the book, but also not at all upset about the portrayal of her. I mean, although she's portrayed very well. I mean, I'm kind of the the problem, the troublemaker in the book. Yeah, everybody <laughs> comes across. I mean, I, I well, I, it's it's an incredible book. Let's tell people who have not read it yet why why is it that you're having these feelings about? It? What is the book about? Um, well, I mean, in in broad strokes, it's about. Um, you know, 40 years, it spans 40 years of my life um, in a nonlinear fashion. So it, it bounces back and forth in time, which uh, was a structure I wanted to use because it, it's sort of how I think. And I wanted, I wanted the form to match the content in a way. Um, but it's, you know, about my history with uh, the dominant um, uh, probably obsessions in it are um, my mental illness, I have rapid cycling bipolar mm-hmm. with uh, occasional psychotic episodes and my history with addiction mm-hmm. and um, and my history with relationships with other people and um, 
hopefully it's more than just about me. It has some larger implication, you mm -hmm. know, that, that it would resonate with, with other people. That was a big fear of mine when I was writing it, that it didn't just become about me. Mm-hmm. This this idea to do it in nonlinear um, was was really interesting because well as somebody who reads these books trying to track somebody's sobriety no oh, yeah you know I was getting uh, you know and and you know you know and then suicidal ideation and suicide attempts like I trying to piece the timeline together was a really interesting process and you you not only talk about you'll you'll also put in times of. Um, well-known people killing themselves or, uh, you know, events that have nothing to do with you. Right. The outside texts were sort of meant to be illustrative of obsession of obsessions of mine. Mm -hmm. And again, it was, um, I wanted the book to be sort of a structural mimesis of the way I think. Mm -hmm. So the outside texts were, you know, uh, about my obsessions mm -hmm. and hopefully resonated off mm -hmm. my story. If that makes sense. Yeah. No. Absolutely. Did you ever read um, Anne Marlowe's book, uh, How to Stop Time? No. Heroin from A to Z. It was a book I read before I got sober. I used to read it all like over and over and over again. I don't know if you ever did that with sort of drug memoirs, where before, what, while you were using, you read these drug memoirs, which would be the most disturbing thing in the world <laughs> to read, but you do it anyway. Did you ever do that? No. No. I uh, I never read a, a drug or drinking memoir when I was using. Have you now? Um, I've read uh, a fair amount. Mm -hmm. You know, I wouldn't say that uh, I, I'm an expert in in the field mm -hmm. reading wise, but I've read I've read a fair amount. Um, I tried to avoid them when I was working on mine, but I'd right. re I'd read more prior to that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Did um, well. Hers also does nonlinear. She actually does a dictionary. She starts with like the word addiction, and she goes into it. Somehow manages to tell a story while being it's 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 heroin from A to Z. It starts with A, and I forget what the last word is. But, cool. What's the title? Uh, How to stop time, heroin stop from time. A to Z. Cool. Um, so, in terms of what you were just talking about with the X, did you show pages to people before who were in the book? I didn't. Um... The only thing, uh, I, well, I, I showed pages to my wife because mm -hmm. um, I was, you know, very concerned with her reaction to it. Right. Um, and my friend Gina, who's my former editor, um, saw it in several drafts. Mm -hmm. um, she's my first reader, and I'm her. We're uh, each other's first reader of it's manuscripts. Good to have that. Yeah. And she's uh, an amazing editor, so it was it was like having two editors on the book, her and my editor, Kevin Dowden, who's amazing. Um, but uh, And Gina and Gail are, I would say, probably the two prominent figures in the book. They're, you know, they're the characters, the, characters, the people I remember. Yeah, the they, they take up a lot of narrative space or at least uh, narrative intensity, I guess. And how, how is your wife's health now? Um, you know, up and down. Mm -hmm. um, you know, she she struggles with pain and chronic fatigue, and mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's difficult. What, um, in terms of, as you were talking about, you know, putting this out there, how many people in your life knew about your, uh, you know, you talk the very end of the book talks about how you're actually talking to Patrick at the uh, former. Uh, 
After Party pod guest, Patrick <laughs> O'Neill, and prominent After Party magazine writer. Yeah, his columns uh, are great. They're so good. But, uh, you know, you talk about being at the LA Times Festival of Books, and your friends all kind of assume you're high, and he's the only one who confronts you and says, what's going on? And you actually tell him about, you know, mental illness. Right. Um, yeah, I, I, were you asking if I was, how many people knew? Yeah, I mean, how how new is this information to the people in your life that's um, in the book? Pr- the, to the, you know, the depth and intensity of it is probably new to just about everyone, mm-hmm. um, except people who, you know, I've lived with and my closest friends and, um, but it, you know, like I, you know, I mean, even teaching a class, like my students know I'm a recovering addict, but like, you know, they don't know that uh, I, I have a mental illness. I, I don't um, I don't advertise that nearly mm-hmm. as much. It's something I've been much more private about. Um, and what concerns do you have about having that out there now? Um, well, you know, the f- sort of fear that people will just look at me differently. Mm-hmm. Um, that, well, yeah, the the fear that people will look at me differently and just think, you know, I'm crazy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that I'm not the same person that they've known for years. Um, but that's probably just projection. Um, you know, my friends love me. They, they're accepting and, you know, they... They probably don't think twice about it, really. Mm-hmm. What? Um, so, so for people who have not read the book, in terms of talking about your experience with uh, with being bipolar, to but talk about, uh, you know, when did you first realize you were struggling with this? What has been the experience? My first uh, initial diagnosis was when I was about twenty years old in college, and I'd been up just about a, a week, and uh, I didn't. I was in a psychotic episode and didn't realize it, and had never had one. And um, I had a roommate who had a schizophrenic ex, ex-wife, mm-hmm. um, and he said, "You know, you have to go to the hospital. I think you might be schizophrenic." Mm-hmm. And I thought that was ridiculous, but you know, I didn't remember most of the weeks, so. Um, you know, I went to the hospital and, and I didn't have schizophrenia, but they diagnosed me with rapid, what they at that time called rapid, rapid cycling bipolar. Um, now gets called ultrarium bipolar, mm-hmm. which is uh, just because um, uh, to be rapid, rabbit, uh, rapid, rapid, um, there's like two to four um, episodes a year Mm -hmm. and you know I would when things aren't going well I'll have you know two or three in a week Um, so it's a a different category but so the difference is just in the number of episodes that what was it ultra what's the ultrarian ultrarian that means more than rapid rapid Um, it's a form of rapid rapid Um, it's just a, a a name they've been using more more frequently and uh, currently. And what happened during that week that you found out about? And w- what do you know? Did, was it just sort of time? Suddenly, it was a week later. How? how what is that experience well, for that, you? That first one was also chemically enhanced. I was on a lot of cocaine, so mm-hmm. that um, they don't last a week. 
Like my my episodes don't last a week; they last about. I'm in my regular episodes now, mm-hmm. um, and for years, last about six to eight hours, mm-hmm. and I lose chunks of time. I uh, m- maybe they last ten hours, but I lose about six hours. I don't remember six hours of them, uh, more or less. Um, so the first one was uh, an aberration in some ways. Um, because I was, you know, and if you just stay up a week, you're going to go crazy. Right. You know, so Coke the, alone with right. no mental illness, a week of Coke? You, I mean, you literally were not sleeping and you were, were you snorting or injecting or? Uh, snorting. Mm-hmm. Um, and sleeping, you know, maybe an hour a day. Mm-hmm. And so, and that um, even later, you know, when I was clean, um, periods of a lack of sleep really trigger episodes. Um and before that, L.A. Times Festival of Books um, sort of breakdown, um, I had had one to two hours of sleep for about two weeks. And, you know, that that's bad news. After usually. three days, you're supposed to be, like, legally insane. Have you ever heard that? No, I, I hadn't. I mean... Um, and in terms of it's struggling with sleep, it's not just choosing to stay up. No, it's not a, a like a good manic episode where I, I'm choosing to stay up. Although I've had those, you know, um, I have to be careful not to sort of take advantage of those. Like right. I've had, you know, cycles where I wrote for 48 or 72 hours and those are really bad for me. Um, because the toll it takes on you right, afterwards. Right. I mean, they're they're when it's happening, it's an, it's an amazing feeling. You know, right. it feels like you know the world's just falling into place, and you can you know the chessboard. You can really look ahead and see the moves. Right. Um, so it's it's difficult to try to stop that while it's happening. But the smart thing to do is monitor it and um, try to get sleep and. But can't you literally not sleep while it's going on? Um, you know, sometimes, but there are a lot of uh, sort of routines that mm-hmm. they recommend you do, eating at the same time every day, mm-hmm. trying to sleep at the same time every day, and I'm honestly not very good about that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know... That's the one time I'm allowed to take a sedative is when I need when I need to sleep right. when I'm in an episode. What do you take? Um, uh, usually either Xanax or Klonopin. Mm-hmm. And there's if I'm in a psychotic episode, there's another drug that just puts me to sleep so that I don't do anything dangerous. Well, I was taking for years. I mean, I'm getting off now of Trazodone. Did you ever do that one? No. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a failed SSRI. Okay. Didn't make people happier, made them tired if they were anxious. Mm. And, um, and I, I always had this sort of concept that I was an insomniac and just got put, I was addicted to Ambien. And when I got sober, I just got put on Trazodone and just automatically took it every night, assuming I needed it. And it's, I'm now about three months of getting off of it. I take it occasionally, but it's just very interesting that I assumed I needed this, this, I never tried. I never tried sleeping without it. And um, are they like a benzo that get less effective if you take them every day? No, because it's not a benzo. It's an SSRI. So so you never can build up a tolerance. You never can get addicted. You don't have to increase in order to get the same effect. Right. Um, It just simply relaxes you. I mean, I don't know what you're – for me, anxiety about insomnia is – 
what causes insomnia and is much worse than the insomnia is that get in bed. Oh, my God, I'm not going to be able to, sleep. you know, I don't know if you ever have that. Yeah, it, it becomes sort of a vicious cycle. Yeah. For me. You know, if I'm already a bit, little bit wired and having trouble sleeping, I get anxious about not sleeping and that sort of feeds on itself and right. keeps going. Did you write sections of this book while in those, you know, 72-hour manic episodes? Um I don't think I had a 72-hour period with this book. I did with my last novel. Mm -hmm. um, but with this one, I probably did have a lot of 12 to 14-hour days, which are st that's still stretching it. That's not very healthy. But it's really hard to walk away when things are going that well. Right. Do you ever do the, you know, the sort of idea about people in manic episodes is that they're, they're buying a lot of, they're, I'm going to go buy an island. I don't, uh, I've never had the, the shopping problem. Mm -hmm. um, I, I have friends who buy a tremendous amount of clothing or shoes. Right. Um, I, I've never had that. Uh, you know, when I was single, um, I, I had a lot more sex when I was in a manic phase. Mm -hmm. Um, and well, I mean, sex with different people. I right. mean, I still do, but. <laughs> right, right, right. But it's with your wife. And so, um, yeah, did you, and so that first episode, so, so you, had you been in therapy before that? Had you had indications that there was something going on? I had depression in high school and saw a therapist a few times, but uh, I didn't really, take to it. I didn't like her or trust her, so I didn't really go back. But I didn't have symptoms of bipolar. Mm -hmm. It tends to hit, you know, a little bit later. Mm -hmm. I, I had pretty severe depression probably at 17. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, the bipolar, the first sign of it was at 20. And were you surprised when you received that diagnosis at the hospital? Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, it was... You know, I didn't even know what it was, really. What year was that? Oh, um, 1985 or 6. So long, long, long before it had reached sort of, uh, you know, cultural knowledge. Yeah, one of the doctors was still calling it uh, manic depression. Yeah. And, and so you uh, left the hospital with medication to treat it? How did that work? Uh, that was terrible. It was kind of the dark ages of, of yeah. medication for uh, brain stabilizers, and they, they would put you on, you know, lithium and things like that. And it just, uh, I felt terrible. I felt slow. Mm -hmm. Like my brain wasn't working. Um, I talked really slowly. Mm -hmm. I thought slowly, and I hated them, and I just stopped taking the meds. After Not, how long? Oh, probably only a few weeks. I don't. Mm -hmm. I don't think I made it to the second refill mm -hmm. or the first refill of the pills. Mm -hmm. And then what happened then? Um, I self-medicated for a lot of years, mm -hmm. and at first it was, you know, and I think it's true of a lot of addicts. At first it worked. Yeah. Uh, and uh, you know, so that it's it kind of sneaks up on you that you have a problem with it, yeah. or at least it did for me. But well, It's sort of that, like, what's that 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 famous quote? Like, you go bankrupt first slowly, then all of a sudden, I can't remember, I'm completely yeah. maligning it. But it's basically like, it sneaks up on you slowly, and it's unavoidable how much it's not working right. with addiction, I think. Yeah, 
for me too. That was my experience. Yeah, the it's a Hemingway line. Oh, it is Hemingway. Know? Yeah. Yeah. How how Mike Campbell's? He, someone asked him how he went bankrupt. Right. And he says two ways: slowly at first, and then all of a sudden. Right. Which I think is a great description of most bottoms and crashes. Yeah. What? Um, so, in terms of addiction, what were your first? Uh, you know, first drugs. Um, how long are you sober now? Uh, this time, seven and a half years. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Congratulations. Thanks. And uh, so, so can you walk me through the path? You know how it started, then, you know, getting sober, relapse, that kind of thing. Um, my first drinks were when I was like eight years old. Um, not every day, obviously, but my parents would have parties and I would drink the remaining drinks the Mm -hmm. next morning, like on a Sunday morning, and I would smoke the cigarettes that were left in the ashtray. Mm -hmm. And I just felt, you know, it felt incredible. Mm -hmm. It felt different than I normally felt. And I sort of developed a very early an obsession to change the way my mind felt. Mm -hmm. Like I wasn't comfortable sober or straight. And you did you know that at eight? Um, I knew that I'd never felt quite as good, although I, ha- I well, I'd felt better uh, once. I hadn't, I took a, my father worked at a mental institution right. and I uh, swallowed a pill off the floor when I was five or six years old. Um, and I don't know what it was, but it was a heavy narcotic that, you know, had me just floating and feeling as better than I ever had in my life. Mm-hmm. And they, they pumped my stomach. Because you, what ha- what happened? You got sick? You started? No, they, well, I was kind of passing out, I guess. And they took me to the hospital and then, you know, pumped my stomach with the, the charcoal and all that. Mm-hmm. And everyone was tremendously concerned and I really didn't understand why. Mm-hmm. I felt very good before they took me away. Right, before they took it from you. And so, and then how did you get into drugs from there? A lot of drinking, probably from, well, I was an athlete for a while. I was a basketball player. So I I didn't uh, do, I wasn't a daily drinker or drug user, probably till my junior year when I blew out my knee and my basketball career was over. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I, I was a recreational user probably 14 to 17 and then my senior year I started using a lot mostly um, mostly benzos that I would steal from people's cabinets and things like Mm -hmm. that and a lot of drinking you know because drinking was always available right Um, and because of blowing out the knee did they put you on any opiates or yeah I got I had surgery and I was given uh, morphine for the first time and fell in love. Mm-hmm. I didn't get to do more of it till my freshman year of college, where um, I had a Percocet dealer, and you know sometimes he had morphine, and that that's when my sort of opiate obsession really started. Was mm-hmm. when I was, I guess that's eighteen, right, freshman year of college. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Did so in terms of like favorite drugs, or were you? Was it? You know, I I do think, I mean, I actually like both opiates and cocaine, but I feel like people often make a choice. Um, Definitely like opiates better. Mm -hmm. Uh, At one time, 
actually I was talking to Patrick and neither of us were giant fans of cocaine mm -hmm. and I said you know if there was only cocaine you know maybe I wouldn't have been an addict <laughs> and then he laughed and he said of course you would have been right <laughs> you know because whatever it's, it's the, there yeah you know, even if, if it it's was, not your top choice right you know so um I did a fair amount of cocaine because it was more prevalent in the 80s yes. than a lot of opiates. It was very hard to get heroin in Boston in the 80s. Mm -hmm. um, it was easier to get pharmaceutical, synthetic opiates. Mm -hmm. uh, but cocaine was everywhere. Yes, yes. Now it's sort of the opposite. I think o opiates are everywhere. From what I understand, you know, I, like Oxycontin is huge among high school kids mm -hmm. and heroin is dirt cheap, mm -hmm. which is, I think, is unfair. <laughs> you know? Well, I think what's happening is a lot of kids are being, being put on opiates for whatever reason, you know, some legitimate reason, getting hooked, and then they get cut off, and then heroin is so cheap that it's easier to get that than to continue to get opiates from the doctor. Right. It's gotten ridiculously cheap from what I understand. Who knew? Yeah. Yeah, I, I missed... I picked the wrong time to be a, to be a junkie. To be the sober guy, <laughs> the junkie. Yeah, I know. I missed... There's so... I, I, uh, what was... Uh, uh, well, oh, God, what is the thing that I missed in the 80s? You know that everybody did. Quaaludes? Quaaludes. Loved Quaaludes. I hear those were amazing. They, they were great. But then... And then I got sober before Oxy became a thing. So I missed both. My relapse, I did a lot of oxy. You did? Yeah. I, I had a one-year relapse after 15 years clean, and I, I did a lot of Oxycontin. And so, okay, so when, when did you get sober the first time? Uh, 1993. Mm -hmm. September 15th. September 15th. <laughs> yeah, I, um, I, I relapsed once, and my, my original date is very much logged into my head. Yeah. May 2nd. May 2nd, 2000. It's there. Um, so, and so you, uh, you got sober and was it a struggle? Uh, was it a relief at that point? What was that like? Uh, it was both a struggle and a relief. I think I was just done. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I had planned on not living till I was 30 and had lived, uh, an accordingly reckless life just not thinking I was going to make it past 30, so I didn't really care about damage I was doing and things mm -hmm. like that. And then um, I worked, I was a house painter and an industrial painter. We'd paint bridges and airline hangers and things like that, and the whole crew uh, were alcoholics. Uh, there were two guys in AA on, on the crew, but mo most everyone was a drinker who mm -hmm. needed to drink at lunch just to keep steady. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, and then I got a gig once a week at a microbrewery in, in uh, Norwalk, Connecticut. And I was on the bottling line, and there, uh, it would fill 12 bottles at once, but one was a short. There was, it was just broken. Mm -hmm. So every 12th beer was 11 ounces instead of 12, and I got to take those home. Okay. So I would take like three cases of beer home every Thursday night. And Connecticut has blue laws, so you can't get liquor on, on Sundays. Sunday. I went to college in Connecticut. It was a great tragedy. Oh, whereabouts? Uh, Trinity and Hartford. Okay, sure. Yeah. Close to Norwalk. Not far. Yeah. Um, so I thought I'd never run out of beer um, by the end of a weekend. Right. And I, one Sunday, 
you know, I, there were two beers left in the fridge and the place looked like Keith Moon had, my house just looked <laughs> like it had been destroyed by a band. And I had the first beer and then I had the second and I thought, well, now I'm going to have to go to a bar and I really don't want to go to a bar. I don't want to see people. I was kind of down. And I thought, you know, maybe I should just stop this. It just wasn't working anymore. And I had tried to quit a, f a few times prior to that in a more desperate way. Mm -hmm. um, this was just sort of a quiet acceptance that things weren't working. And, mm -hmm. you know, and I probably should have done it in rehab because I ended up having seizures and things like that. You know, it wasn't the wisest way to do it. So you just said that Monday? You just said, I'm stopping? That Sunday after two beers, um, I, I just I, I just thought, I'm, I can't do this anymore. It had reached a point where it, it just wasn't working. Mm -hmm. And then I was really lucky because my boss on the paint crew, you know, I was incredibly sick. Mm -hmm. uh, the first two days, I couldn't go in at all. But by the third day, you know, I was shaking and, and, you know, just in terrible shape and... Um, he let me work the whole day and just mix paint and not paint. Mm -hmm. um, and there were the two guys on the crew who were in AA, and they were, you know, without being pushy about it, incredibly helpful mm -hmm. to have like a daily exposure mm -hmm. to to see that two people had gotten through it and gotten clean. And one of them I had known when he was still using and drinking. And he was one of the biggest messes I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. And uh, my band actually played a club that, that he owns uh, back in 2008. Mm -hmm. And a mutual friend of ours was, was there. We were having dinner before the show. And uh, he said, you know, I would never have taken a bet that either of you would be alive at this point. Yeah. <laughs> um, so he was a, a, in really bad shape, probably worse than me, and I'd seen him turn his life around. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. you know, it, it was, there were examples for me to follow. Mm -hmm. Did you, and then, and so aside from getting sick, were you, uh, in terms of your mood, how, like, what happened? Did you feel immediately better? Uh I remember like four days, five days when I, you know, when I stopped with the DTs, I was driving to work and I realized I hadn't thrown up that morning mm -hmm. and I got a cup of coffee and I, I, it didn't make me sick and I wasn't shaking. So there was this realization maybe five days in that, wow, maybe this is how people feel in the morning, <laughs> you know, because I, I would wake up shaking and throw up and need a few drinks before I went to work at that point mm -hmm. and it was uh, I was just driving to work and thought wow maybe this is how people feel mm -hmm. and it, it was it was kind of uh, an epiphanal moment mm -hmm. you know like you know maybe there it, you know it was that sort of early pink cloud of sobriety and I, I thought it felt really great and mm -hmm. then it got really difficult about two to three weeks in how uh, I just wanted to drink terribly. Mm -hmm. I, I had quit opiates the year before, and I had started drinking a lot more.
for the last year I drank mm -hmm. because they were pretty much the, it was pretty much the only substance I was still doing. Mm -hmm. So I probably, I was already drinking a lot, but I probably doubled it after I quit opiates. Mm -hmm. And I was proud of myself for quitting opiates. Oh, right. And like if people gave me hassles, I was like, you know, I, I deserve a medal, <laughs> you know. And you're giving Oops. me you're giving me shit about this, and you know, right? But you know that was just a, a sort of my dumb point of view at the time. So how much how much were you drinking at the end? Um, by the end, I needed at least a twelve pack and uh, almost a fifth of gin every night. And so those periods where you really wanted to drink, what did you do? Because you didn't drink. No. I, it was, that was a period of really just getting through five minutes at a time sometimes. Mm -hmm. You know, instead of saying I won't drink today, like I won't drink for the next ten minutes. Mm -hmm. I won't go to a bar. I won't go to a liquor store. Mm -hmm. And, you know, alcohol is weird because it's so accessible. You know, it was easy in some way. It wasn't easy, but... I didn't know any dealers in the town I was living in because mm -hmm. I had quit the year before and I had moved. But you can always find a liquor store. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and so I think that's what made the drinking uh, sort of more obsessively on my mind, even though I liked opiates better. Mm -hmm. And um, and then when did it get easier? Did it get easier in terms of the cravings? Uh, probably at about six months. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had moved to Buffalo at that point. And Buffalo is a big drinking town. Mm -hmm. Like, they really respect drinking in Buffalo. Mm -hmm. Like, a shot is only, almost always a double. Mm -hmm. And I realized I was in a bar with friends, and I was comfortable, and... You know, they were drinking and I wasn't, and I was okay with it. Mm -hmm. I, I, I didn't have a problem being around alcohol. Mm -hmm. I would have a problem being around other substances. Yeah, you know, yeah. I could be around pot because I don't really like pot. Yeah, well, and if you had a problem with that, you couldn't walk down the street. and You couldn't walk down Hollywood Boulevard because all you do is walk into, like, clouds of pot. Do you notice <laughs> that? Um, I haven't. Ugh, yeah. Well, I walk to work sometimes. and you wonder where all the smokers in LA went cigarette smokers they're all on Hollywood Boulevard which means they're probably not from LA but I encounter <laughs> so many smokers on my walk my one mile walk to work and I never I thought they were all gone I thought well I'm sort of self-obsessed I think everybody quit smoking when I did I had I was off for 11 years and then I started again and I'm trying to quit right now yeah it's um I actually quit through the 12-step program. Really? Through the Nicotine Anonymous 12-step program. So what do, what do they call that, Smober or They something? do. It's so embarrassing. My, <laughs> my friend says, he's like, I'm already not cool. I don't have to use the word Smober to <laughs> show people. Um, but, you know, it worked. I, I was a very committed, avid smoker, and it turned me into a, the most intolerant former smoker of all time. I, I'm that person that walks by plugging my nose and giving you a dirty look. Yeah, when I was off for 11 years... Um, like my wife, we quit at the same time and she was like, it just smells like an ashtray. It's disgusting. You know, I can't believe we used to do that. Yeah. And I was like, it smells incredible. I wish I could have one. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, that's I, interesting. I never lost. 
You never did. No, I, you know, I would follow in the wake of a smoker and just, you know, sort of smell it and breathe it in. <laughs> did she? Did she ever go back to smoking? No, no. See, I guess, yeah, you have to become possibly that person who's repulsed by it. Yeah, I, I better try now because <laughs> yeah, I'm too old to be doing that. I really, I really, I, I didn't transition from from loving it to hating it very quickly. It was, it was. I always felt like a little bit like it's it's like writing a book. I don't know your experience with this, but if I'd known that it, if that how easy it was going to be after it got hard, I would have done it years before. Incredibly difficult and then incredibly easy. Hmm. That that was my experience. Uh, the first three weeks, I just. Um, was absolutely out of my mind, and then it was sort of coasting and becoming intolerant. Yeah, I find, like, the nicotine, like, kicking the nicotine isn't that hard for me, but the habits, yeah. the rituals are, are very difficult. And it's my last thing with rituals, you know, and... Uh, Cocaine was a great ritual. Yeah. I, that was I, fun for I that reason. I always liked things that surrounded yeah. the drugs. Yeah, well, opiates aren't any fun rituals with that, right? You just, like, Get the pill and take it. Well, if you're shooting them. Yeah, and you were. You were. How much of it was that? Not very frequently. Mm -hmm. um, I, when I was in Holland, I did sometimes. Mm -hmm. uh, but I skin pop mostly. Mm -hmm. uh, I wasn't an IV user. Um, with heroin, I smoked or snorted it. Mm -hmm. You know, which is a, kind of a waste economically. But. Right. Right. <laughs> you should be getting more for your money. Yeah. I mean, today it wouldn't matter so much because we know how, how cheap it is. But, and and then and then in terms of your relapse, um, you know, I know it was something that you you didn't tell people about. Yeah, I tried, you know, to hide it. Um, I thought I was doing a much better job of it than it turned out I was. Mm -hmm. um, I, pretty much everyone was on to me. And mm -hmm. I was unaware of that because I was loaded and lying about it. But even my bandmates who have no history with substance abuse or uh, I think even knowing a lot of people with substance abuse uh, were like, you know, something's really wrong. Mm -hmm. I'm like, well, I'm exhausted. You know, I'm working three jobs. I'm doing, you know, writing books, I, um, you know, in three bands. I'm just exhausted. And they're like, you, you, you fall asleep in the middle of a sentence when mm -hmm. you get at, in the middle of practice. Mm -hmm. you know, that's not exhausted. <laughs> and then yet, ironically, later when people did think that you were high, you actually were suffering from exhaustion. Yeah. Well, and, you know, I guess they, they do look a little alike. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or do you live with – okay, I uh, was a shoplifter as a kid. And I got busted for it. I have a thing where whenever I see a sign that says we prosecute shoplifters, I think I've shoplifted. And I think <laughs> I'm being looked at as somebody who's shoplifting. Do you have that where you're paranoid about people thinking you're using when you're not? Hmm. I guess, I guess sometimes, but less frequently and... I do think that's one thing that I'm glad I put in the book because mm -hmm. I think people might think twice now mm -hmm. um, rather than just go go to the initial conclusion. But I, I haven't really felt, you know, since my relapse that people distrusted me since mm -hmm. I got clean again. Mm -hmm. It hasn't been a real fear. You know, the shoplifting thing, I, I have that with cops, mm -hmm. you know, like there'll be a 
a, a DUI check. Yeah. You know? Oh, yeah. And I haven't had a drink in years, and you know, I'll just be dreadfully afraid of you know any authority oh, figure. Oh, yeah. You know, and it just never goes away. Yeah. Remember square headlights? There's square headlights in my rear view. <laughs> you know, um, I was what the last time I was at a DUI checkpoint. This is, um, I was pulled over. I mean, whatever. I went through it, and I said, you know, not only am I sober, but I was listening to one. I told you I listened to all of these just to make sure that it's all in the correct order. And I go, but I am listening to my sobriety podcast. And he goes. <laughs> That's a little self-obsessed, isn't it? Go on. Um, but have you ever, at those, do you tell them you're sober or you, you're like, whatever? I got um, put in one of those, uh, I think I put it in the book. I, I was trying to, there was a, a row of traffic uh, on, on the way home. I was coming home from my, my home meeting and um, there was this row of cars and I wanted to turn left, and I thought I could pull into the parking lot mm -hmm. of, of this strip mall and make a left turn. But it, then I, I realized after I'd pulled out uh, that the traffic stopped before then, and mm -hmm. I would only be pulling into the Pizza Hut. Mm -hmm. with, mm -hmm. So I stopped and tried to get back in the line, and this cop came over and you know was really gruff with me and um, was just one of those asshole cops. Yeah. And, you know, he's like, have you been drinking? Or how many drinks have you had tonight? And I said, I'm coming home from an AA meeting. Mm -hmm. He's like, oh, yeah, I've never heard that one before. <laughs> and he, he put me on the hood and, you know, ran my license. And th he was just very angry. Power trip. <laughs> and then was he like, sorry, man, or, or no? No, there was no apology. He said, mm -hmm. don't drive like an asshole. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Which, you know, I was driving like an asshole, but not intentionally. Yeah. One of those times. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, um, uh, yeah, I get it. I recently, not recently, about a year ago, ugh, I was trying to get around saying I ended up, I ended up not just dr driving into a street that was blocked off because there had been an accident there. And to the point where the cop told me I terrified him. Now, if you're terrifying a cop by the way you're driving, oh, my God. And he just, yeah, anyway, it was awful. And, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, bad memory. Um, but in the end, I was so hysterical that he was sort of consoling me. And I remember him going, you're not a bad person. I'm not saying you're a bad person. I'm just saying you're a scary driver. Oh, that's like, kind of sweet. Yeah, I was, yeah, there's something about a, a man in authority yelling at you for 10 minutes that makes me fall into a puddle. Yeah. Dis dis destroys me. Yeah, yeah. So it just turns me into an eight-year-old. Yeah, I mean, yeah, hysterical. Anyway, bad memory. Um, but I so okay. So in, in terms of today, in terms of with uh, you know, what is the day-to-day -day like with the mental illness? What what today? What is your experience with it? Well, I'm on the best drugs I've ever been on. What are you on? Uh, Lamictal, which is a brain stabilizer. Oh, yeah. And it's been very effective for mm -hmm. me. Um, I, I have not had many episodes. Uh, I've had brief uh, manic phases, which I like. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, they as, as high as they get, they, they go just as low. Mm -hmm. So I have to be a little careful with those mm -hmm. um, and not not ride them as far as they would go if mm -hmm. I weren't keeping mm -hmm. an eye on them. But I haven't had uh, a psychotic break for quite a while. How long have you been on Lamictal? Probably three years now. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm on that and uh, an antidepressant. And mm -hmm. um, 
they just made the first antidepressant for people with bipolar, Latuda. Okay, that's uh, what's called Latuda. Yeah, because most um, antidepressants are, are contraindicated for bipolar because they speed up cycles. Mm -hmm. But the only antidepressant that's worked on me is Welbutrin, which mm -hmm. does speed up rapid cycles, but it's a trade-off between you know, depression and keeping an eye on the cycles. Mm -hmm. So it was more, you know, my my shrink was like, we're doing triage right now and mm -hmm. we have to deal with your depression. And if the cycles get bad, we'll deal with that mm -hmm. later. Mm -hmm. And so far it's been pretty good. So lately I've been very stable for, you know, for me. Yeah, <laughs> what does that mean? Um, how often is a depressed, like how often do you get depressed? Well, I've been in terrible depression, but I meant with the bipolar. Mm -hmm. um, but I've, uh, it's been probably a, a terrible year of depression. Why? Why do, or is there not a reason? Well, there, part of it's just chemical and, you know, part of it's influenced by things that are going on in life. Right, right. And it's very difficult to figure out, you know, which is which because you're on antidepressants and you don't know how bad you would be if you weren't on them. Right. Like, um, so how much of it is, I, ultimately though, I mean, when they do brain scans, uh, if people are situationally depressed, like if someone, you know, loses a child or something, and when people are chemically depressed, it's the same in the brain. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that. Yeah, it, that registers the same as, as far as the way the brain's firing. Is it, but in terms of, it, the reaction of the chemically depressed person is that there's no there's no belief that it's going to change. Isn't right. that it? Isn't that the difference? Um, or at least one of them? It may be. I mean, I can't, you know, speak for the example that I, I gave, which is an extreme one. Yeah. But, yeah, there's a sort of hopelessness that all your days are going to be like the day you're having. Right. And it's hard to, the only thing that changes that is that, with experience, you know you've been through it, and at some point, it lifts. Yeah. But, yeah, there are periods where it's just, you know, it feels relentless and like it'll never end. Yeah. Yeah. Did, um, in terms of the book, you know, I have a friend who, who writes books who says, God, whenever somebody's book comes out, I just feel so bad for them. You know, this perception is, congratulations, aren't you so excited? I find it to be, I have PTSD from book releases. I find it to be one of the most depressing, stressful, depressing more than stressful, actually, experiences. Yeah, this one has, has stressed and depressed me. Other ones haven't. Really? Um, That's lucky, I think. As much. I mean, my fiction hasn't... Uh, I felt less exposed with fiction. You know, no matter how autobiographical it is, you could say you made it up. Yeah, I mean, I feel like the part that's always been difficult um, is is more just, you know, here you've worked so hard and, and, and it's this big moment and then the sort of uh, deafening silence compared to what your expectation is going to be. Yeah, quite quite often. Quite, I mean, especially if you sort of have an alcoholic perception, which is, you know, the whole world has been waiting for this book, and there are just <laughs> going to be, you know, parades in my honor when it comes out, and then it's sort of like, uh, oh, oh, okay, so so yeah, it's not going to go in. They're not doing a review. The New York Times is not reviewing me, or whatever it is. Yeah, I've never really had that, you know, because I've I've been an indie writer my whole career till this book, and mm -hmm. this this is the first one that 
realistically has a shot at being reviewed by mm -hmm. some of the major papers. Mm -hmm. uh, it may not be, but it, it's one that may be, which none of my others, um, well, one of my others was in a roundup in, mm -hmm. in the Times book review, but mm -hmm. you know, that was four books. It was just, it mentioned it in mm -hmm. briefly, but it wasn't a full review. Um, but you know, this one has a shot and that's both exciting and frightening. Mm -hmm. You know, to get panned by, you know, the San Francisco Chronicle or the Boston Globe or the Times, you know, seems quite frightening. <laughs> yeah, I know a guy who wrote a book on um, uh, on depression, and um, and it just got panned by the Times. And it's it's not like, oh, okay, somebody wrote a book on depression, so you should handle him with kid gloves. But the sort of pan was so vicious. Yeah, some reviews can be really... Well, like you said, vicious and personal. Yeah. Yeah, this was what it said. You hate him. I mean, it doesn't get more vicious than it's an autobiography. Right. And the, the critic writes that you hate the person. Yeah. You I know? mean, I, like every friend I have who's written a memoir says, don't go on Goodreads. Oh, yeah. And I, you know, I did, which I shouldn't have. And, you know, some person said, you know, he's just a despicable character and you can't empathize with him in the least. He's, he's just awful. Right. And I, and I was like, well, geez. <laughs> I know. Well, it's sort of like, okay, cool. Why don't you uh, go write your book and we'll see how empathetic you are because you don't seem like a very, you know, you're somebody who's sitting home trashing somebody who actually went out there and lived a life and wrote a book. Yeah. I mean, it's their right. You know, once it's out there, it's it's the audience's. You know, you, you gave it away. You've lost control of it. So... She had a right to, to hate me, but it's, you know, it's, it still hurt my feelings. Of course. <laughs> I, well, and Amazon alone is, I find Amazon's more brutal in Goodreads, actually. Really? Yeah. I mean, for me, I, um, it's interesting because this podcast has gotten, you know, gets reviews on iTunes, and a few of them have been so helpful where what they said I actually have been able to use. Because mm -hmm. it was sort of like, I wish she would shut up and let the person talk. You know, it was mean. Um, yeah. I wish whatever. And, and I actually said, could say, oh, that really hurt, but at least I can use it. With books, it's out there. What do you want me to do? Take it back and for the paperback version, right. write something that's going to make you happier? <laughs> so it's, it's brutal. Yeah. It, it's, sometimes it's interesting. Like the Chicago Reader with my last novel um, gave it a mostly good review and identified what they saw as a problem in it. And it's what I saw as, a, as, you know, it was a problem that I was hoping would sneak by readers. Mm -hmm. And I had a suspicion that, I, you know, there was this one element of it that didn't work. And they caught it. And I thought, well, that's actually a good review. Mm -hmm. I mean, a smart review, mm -hmm. not, not one that, you know, I was jumping up in joy for. That you were going to have framed and put on your wall. <laughs> yeah, but it was interesting to... To see them, you know, sort of call the book out on the the one thing I was nervous about. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Is there one thing about this book that you're nervous about, or is it the everything? It's it's everything. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's everything with this one. I've never done a memoir. I feel very raw and exposed. Mm -hmm. And yeah, there's you know, and my sort of governing principle when I wrote it was. You know, if I was embarrassed by writing a scene, that that was a scene that should have been in there. Mm. So, I mean, it's a catalog of embarrassments and shame.
in some ways. And, you know, I've been asked in interviews if it was cathartic right. or therapeutic, and it wasn't. It's, it's made things worse. It, really? It brought up a lot of awful memories that uh, are now m much more alive than they were two, three years ago. Okay, but arguably you don't know how much those memories were affecting you on a subconscious level. That's and there is point. an argument for the fact that, you know, that releasing them maybe not at this moment yet you're feeling the relief from that, but you do not know what's coming. No, that's a good point. Um, you know, this, this sort of recovery concept, you're only as sick as your secrets. You know, and I think about that too because I did a memoir. And it's sort of like what is mine what is the relief? And then what is just nobody's business? Right. And, you know, when I do have regrets about stuff that I've written that's out there, I wish I hadn't. Yeah, I have that I'm with other things. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting because, you know, we shall not regret the past is sort of one of the, you know, aphorisms or it's in the literature. Right. And it's like, for the most part, I don't. But there, there are things, you know. But then, you know, I try to look at it, too, as, um, you know, I sort of like what I was just saying to you about how you don't know what the end result is going to be. I don't know what the purpose of that is. The purpose of what? Having revealed something that I regret at this point. Oh, okay. I don't know, you know, that maybe I needed to do that for whatever reason that I can't see yet. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. You know, this idea, I don't know, I don't know, we should start wrapping up, so this is a good place to go, I think, in terms of some sort of, like, you know, universe that knows better than me or knows what's good for me more than I know what's good for myself. You know, where do you stand on that idea? Well, I mean, it's an interesting uh, theory that, you know, I, I think there are a lot of things that, especially that I've written, that I, I had no idea how they would resonate years later. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a lot of time. I, I mean, I remember uh, in the early 2000s, I had written a novel and like 15 stories and a couple of screenplays and a few plays. And after three years of writing all of those that had, you know, wildly different plots and things like that, I realized that I was writing about the same central trauma, mm -hmm. that they were all about the same thing. What was it about your friend that... The, the childhood friend that died? No, it was a, a, about uh, someone very close to me having emer emergency surgery and, and they could have died. And all this stuff was about, um, on one level, how everything that you think is solid can be sort of pulled out from under you in, in a split second. Which actually does relate to your childhood friend. Yeah, yeah. And um, so, so I mean, is there anything else that you would want people listening to know about you, about your book, uh, about depression, mental illness, recovery, addiction? Uh, I can't really uh, think of anything off the top of my head. I mean, I, I, uh, I would answer anything, but I, I, I don't know that I, I have any sort of... Uh, agenda to right to, to state that, that I can come up with or anything well um people should get this book it's it's absolutely well, I you. literally <laughs> cannot put it down um you know Liz the publicist sent it to me and I said oh you're sending it to me kind of late because the release date and um you know and she said don't worry about it you're gonna read it right away oh, that you're was gonna read it fast so that was Robert Bears with After Party Pod. Now you can get all After Party Pod episodes by going to afterpartypod.com. You can follow us on Twitter at After Party Site. You can find us on Facebook 
facebook.com slash after party chat. You can also get a free copy of how I got sober. That is a collection of essays from after party magazine. You know what I'm going to do? Email me and I'm going to send you a link to it. It's $1.99 on Amazon. I'm saving you $2. You're making $2. All you have to do is email me, Anna at theafterpartygroup.com and I will get that out to you. And that is all I've got to say. Thank you for listening.